Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another uh, Shark Pod here. Uh, we are live from Greystone Studios. Mark's out in Glenageary, and our guest, uh, Will Mera, is out there in Mexico. How are you doing, Will? I'm doing better than uh, than most, to be honest with you. I'm sitting under a palm tree on a, on a beach here beside the Pacific Ocean, and uh, yeah, just working away in a in a kind of a co working space at the moment. And uh, and I've been learning Spanish for about three months, so using this opportunity to you know to learn, to grow, and to keep working, you know, on on the various projects around the globe while I'm uh, while I'm on the move. Absolutely, and is it so? The for people who have been following the podcast for a, a long time now, it's all about business, but also lifestyle design. Where I want to talk to people who are kind of being uh, specific about the way that they're living. So it's not so much just the uh, the typical um, kind of path that a lot of people are on, but they're kind of designing what they what makes them happy and uh, bringing that into their lives as well. And uh, for people, uh, for context, for uh, for Will, uh, Will's the co-founder of Bingo Loco, um, which is the the an amazing mix of uh party and uh you know uh uh bingo basically i think that what, 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 how do you guys uh, always very, it's always very interesting to try and explain to people when when people ask you know what what is it that you do and it's, well, one of the things that it was bingo loco and it's it's a bingo rave where we've we've gamified the game of bingo which is already a very fun game to play and we've we've used it as a focal point to create a very high energy party that's very interactive and immersive. So we get the audience to be part of the show. We use comedy to get people on side. You know, we use music to bring the energy and we use, you know, hilarious and bizarre prizes to keep people motivated playing right through the night. So it doesn't really matter whether you're up for the night or not. We kind of guide you using various mechanisms to making sure that everyone by the end of the night is having a great time. Um, it's very simple. Like marking off numbers on a sheet is the most simple thing you can do, and then we basically use that as a structure, as a framework for bringing kind of a, a kind of a nightlife experience product, and uh, yeah, and it's 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 gone really well, and we're now in, well, I think we're in something forty to fifty locations around the world, so it's been Amazing. very interesting journey growing what has been initially something that we thought would just be a fun idea, you know, we were all on stage at the first event, didn't really know what we were doing, it lasted five hours, we were all having a laugh, we were all a little bit drunk too. We're all dressed up in wigs and outfits and stuff like that, and just enjoying it and making what it was. And afterwards, you know, everyone's like, "You have to do that again." And uh, and we did, and we think we sold at every event in Dublin for a year straight before we were like, "This has legs. Let's do it elsewhere." Wow! And so we did. And what was yeah. that, the original idea? Was it because you guys were doing events already, and this was just something that you guys were going to give a go? That did someone on the team really love bingo? What was the it was a combination, a combination of a few things, to be honest with you. Like, so me and my two business partners that, that started at Craig Reynolds and Stephen Lawless, we had previously all been involved in various different types of events over the years. I've been doing things like wellness retreats and morning yoga raves, and I've been kind of organizing club nights and managing techno parties. And I've, I've had a deep insight into understanding what goes into the nuts and bolts of organizing an event. And my partners have been involved in festivals and you know doing marketing for super clubs and stuff like that so we had the experience under our belt and we'd seen globally a rising trend in interactive entertainment where people wanted something more than buying a ticket turning up and watching a show they wanted to be brought into the show they wanted to interact with it they wanted to have some sort of gamification in their night and we saw things like secret cinema which is an interactive kind of um 
theatrical event that was huge in London. Uh, we saw kind of, there was um, things like drag bingo, there was dildo bingo and Reykjavik. There was also things like, um, you know, there's kind of other kind of bingo parties in Australia, the US and stuff like that. There used to be a thing called bingo at the standard in New York. It was basically seen as like a, a Sunday wild bingo party rollover. And me and uh, one of the partners, Craig, had been uh, playing bingo with a lot of Peshmerga soldiers um, in a teacher's mess in North Iraq in late 2016. And because we didn't understand Arabic numbers, we made our own rules around, well, we made a drinking game out of it, for a long story short. And everyone was immediately on side. And I was like, bingo is such a great way to get people, you know, to follow a format. We should definitely make like... Um, make like a drinking game out of this. Maybe it could be something we do with our friends. Maybe we could actually make like a, a brand, the drinking game out of it or something. Uh, but very quickly we made a club night out of it because it's what we knew best to do. And uh, Craig brought his marketing side. I brought the creative side and Stephen brought the production side. And it just turned into an absolute harebrained, mad concept that, you know, just, just developed very quickly over the first six months from something that was more about high energy on stage to something that became more of a theatrical performance with scripting, with production elements, with cues, with staff side stage, you know, bringing in various theatrical planned elements and it, it just manifested into what's now known as, I guess, the bingo loca you'd know today. But if you went to one of the first, say, six or seven events, it was very different. We had, you know, almost semi-naked dancers on stage. We, you know, there was chains involved sometimes. We didn't know whether it was going to go BDSM angle or what was happening with it. And slowly it, it transgressed into something, uh, I guess, more for more for everybody. Uh, and the audience, you know, we use the audience feedback and their reactions to various elements of the show to slowly tailor it into what it, what it is now, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an interesting thing as well because so many times I've been in, so I grew up in Dublin um, and that's where I went out at night, you know, all the, and the nightclubs kind of growing up. Um, and I was always surprised at, at how... Not every nightclub, but most of the nightclubs around Dublin, um, they're packed out. But the the level of effort that they were putting in on the entertainment site was really, really low. It was always something I was I was uh, commenting on, where it was just we just sell drinks. The music is loud. The music is uh kind of vanilla. There's no specific uh, type of music we're gonna play here, but it's still packed and it's still successful. And I always think there's there must it's be because there's else. no alternative offering. Yeah, and that's and that's actually a real issue, especially when you compare it to. A lot of other, you know, large population centers around the world, like Sydney, U, New York, London, and the kind of um, the kind of detail that's given to planning nightlife in some of these locations, in terms of, for example, one of the one of the clubs that me and and the guys love a lot in New York is called House of Yes, and it's the kind of place when you walk in, there's a there's a whole cloakroom of costumes, and there's a whole consent form of of you know behavioral mechanisms that you have to adhere to throughout the night. So you go in and someone's dressed up as a chicken or someone's dressed up as a fairy or someone's dressed up as a, you know, uh, a lizard or whatever it is. And there's themes and there's, there is like creative energy brought in by the organizers and by the, and by the people that come to it as well. They contribute in their own way. And in Dublin, it was very much so you, you could nearly like anybody could make a Dublin club night because and they were. There was, I think, something like a lot of promoters were, were doing, you know, the same club night seven nights a week just with a different poster and with a different brand name and in the same the same venue. And there was nothing different apart from maybe the DJ or the drink promos. You know, and there's only so much you can think of those formulas before you've done every sort of, you know, variable and permutation combination of club night. And people get exhausted by it. But when there's nothing else to go to, you know, that's that's all you have. And if you want to go out and socialize in that way, 
you know, and that's probably why there's a lot of club, a lot of like nightclubs around Dublin that are seeing, you know, even before COVID, a massive decrease in revenue, a massive decrease in the amount of people coming through their doors. Um, and some of them, you know, closing up around the country, apart from, you know, maybe Dublin, where at least there's the, the population density to actually give them some sort of assistance. But, you know, there's a big lean towards a lot of interactive concepts because there's simply no other alternative offering in Ireland. Absolutely. And so, but when you mentioned there, so there's, there's promoters out there that are, uh, or that were out there doing the same night just with different branding, different posters, uh, or a different DJ or whatever. Um, was it difficult to sell this, sell the Bingo Loco idea to uh, kind of venue owners? Uh, were, were they like this? There's there's ch- there's <laughs> there's whips and stuff going on here, or chains, or whatever. Uh, you know, just give us a drink promo, um, and let's just get on with it. Or what, what was the? Yeah. Uh, well, I, th- I mean, at the beginning, I think we were lucky because we had such precedence of doing kind of various things. Look, we were the promoters who also did the same thing. You know, we were doing club nights and putting on the same thing as everyone else was for a long time. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it worked and it still works for a lot of people. And initially, yeah, you know what, you, you had, we had, because of this precedence, you know, we had to try and explain what this content was. And I think the first one we did on a Thursday night, because no one would give us a Friday night, you know, and we were like, we were putting on super early as well, because they didn't want to give us the late night. They didn't know what it was. It was going to be another kind of bingo event. And then, you know, because and we, we have loyalty as well. If we're still working with the same venue in Dublin that we kicked off with in the very beginning, even though it only holds, 300 people whereas we might be doing you know mayo in the castle bar royal theater we'd be doing maybe like a thousand people there but we have loyalty to the people who you know gave us a chance at the start we still work with them today and after people saw that you know it was selling out and the word was getting around and people were seeing us think the turning point was forbidden fruit festival we did a slot at a tent and it was very much so we were kind of like almost like a like a i think like a stage filler you know between acts whatever it was and there was something like 2,000 people poured in, went absolutely mental. There was beach balls flying everywhere, inflatable flamingos. There was, you know, everyone was on stage going mad, CO2 blasts going everywhere. We let off loads of confetti. And people were going by, just everyone just, just roared into this energy. And we had this video that went, you know, very, very far, got a huge traction online. People were like, what's this mad thing? That doesn't look like a bingo event. That's hilarious. And, uh, and it was shortly afterwards then that we were able to set out Vicar Street and we started kind of realizing, okay, this is legs. Um, and after doing that, we, we realized, okay, we need to be more brave with this and see how far we can push it. You know, can we do the RDS? Can we do a music festival? You know, can we go global to some of the bigger cities in the world and see if this takes off there? And, you know, and how will it go? And how much money is that going to cost? And so there was a huge learning in terms of, you know, scaling an event brand that, you know, none of us had before. We understood the principles of it, but, you know, we just kind of gave it a go. And to some level, we had great success in a lot of locations. Cool. And where was the first kind of outside of Ireland that you looked at? Was it the UK? Was it? Um, well, I mean, okay, outside of Ireland, technically, of course, Belfast would be outside of the Republic of Ireland. Um, and we, we're working with, you know, the biggest promoters north of the border. Um, and we've had a great relation, working relationship with them. When they've seen copycats trying to come into the market, they would they would block it and say, no, these are the guys we want to work with. Bingo Locos here. This is the brand. This is the one. This is the one. Um, so we've had great success in that way in terms of, you know, really making kind of fortuitous relationships with people in certain areas. Um, but I guess the first big uh, location that we saw great success outside of Ireland was probably probably Australia. And I think it's primarily because a lot of people had moved over and you know, they'd already knew what Bingo Loco was. It was a taste of home for them. Then there was a lot of people who were over their years and had seen this thing kicking off back home. And finally now it was on their doorstep and they got to give it a go. 
And so in Sydney, we were selling a, a, you know events within four hours and five hours after announcing tickets and stuff like that. And, you know, which has been great because during this pandemic, Australia's really locked down their borders. And right now we're selling out events a lot faster than we expected to in places like Darwin, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane, you know, um, and new locations where normally we wouldn't even be able to start off now. The reputation's building in Australia and it's becoming, see, it's seen as an Australian bingo rave. It's not seen as an Irish bingo rave anymore. We're in territories where there's almost no Irish and, uh, and filling venues. So it's now up and it's running. It's got legs of its own. And um, yeah, now the corporates are booking it. The festivals want it. And it's now entering where we were in Ireland after two years um, in Australia, which is great to see that market finally kick off nationwide. So, yeah, I think Australia definitely. And then after that, then, you know, we were having great success in the US before the pandemic. We were doing sellout shows in, in New York in both Manhattan and Brooklyn. Uh, we were stepping over into Vancouver and Toronto and Canada, selling out shows there as well. And, um, and then, but, but very much so, it's the Irish coming to the show. Okay. Cracking the domestic audience was tough because Americans are just very, very different culturally. They're very diverse in terms of, you know, ethnicity, in terms of uh, pop culture interest. Um, and so when it comes to like, what music do you play at an American show? Do you play country? Do you play R&B? Do you play, what do you play? So we basically had to like figure all of this out and we decided we would then kick off in Austin because it would allow us to purely crack, crack the American market, figure out what they wanted, what made them tick, you know, where we know Maniac 2000 gets people jumping up on a chair and taking the top off in Dublin. That's not yeah. going to work in Austin, you know? Maybe we need country roads, you know? Maybe we need something a bit more you know, maybe something that works in Austin doesn't work in, in Wisconsin. So it's it's a real learning experience in the US and it's it's somewhere that's really, really deep in our deep in our in our kind of crosshairs for for I guess twenty twenty one when when we kind of get back to business, I guess. Absolutely. And are you guys, so how does this work? Are you guys kind of like um, hiring people locally to do that? Are you actually flying over to Austin, doing the gig, going to, like I said, Wisconsin when that's open and, and doing it there as well? Is it the same kind of core team? It's a, it's a, it's a hybrid approach. Um, so, for example, in, in Australia, we have, you know, very talented promoters and people who have like worked in venue management for years. We've assembled a team. There's an office in Sydney. You know, and they kind of manage all the local teams of like DJs and dancers and, you know, and marketeers and um, and MCs and everything else. Because uh, Australia is huge. You know, you've got a massive time difference between East Coast and West Coast. So you really need to have a team that's going to manage a territory that size. Um, whereas, you know, other territories you can have, you can partner with a promoter and do a deal or other territories you might have a city manager style character who, you know, deploys the actual event and controls the kind of operations locally, but very much so it's it's HQ, you know, leading the way in terms of, you know, doing a lot of the marketing in advance, building all the reputation, dealing with media, doing the marketing, you know, um, kind of curating the experience, but just having someone on the ground there to go, you know, do the meetings, talk to the venues, do the setup and making sure all the boxes are ticked. We have a, a very, very fixed formula you know, of uh, a large amount of documentation. So, you know, when you're launching a new city, that person knows exactly what to do, what the press release looks like, you know, how the venue should look, the kind of tech spec that needs to be there. So we've actually just, we've built a formula for how an event's supposed to run, but in, in each location is very much so um, run very differently. Like when we launch in a place, we'll fly in an A-team, the best MC, the best DJ, the best dancers, you know, the best event managers, and they basically, you know, make sure that it goes really well in the territory. 
and we'll bring down loads of local DJs, dancers and MCs and event managers and promoters to see the show in the hope that, you know, they'll get to understand how it works, you know, what makes the audience kick and then formulate a team that after a while will then should be able to run autonomously. So there's a bit of hand-holding at the start because we're very, very, very careful about how the product's presented to an audience and how, how the brand's represented locally. That's so interesting because there's been so many, like, uh, so many kind of nights and stuff like in, in Dublin and um, they have good brands for a year or two and then it kind of fizzles out. Maybe the promoters go do something else or whatever. Um, but to see the kind of standardization in different uh, territories and that type of approach, really interesting. What do you think, Mark? Is that something you can do with the the recruitment game? What do you think? The Sydney well, office, what's going on? It, well, it is. Well, it's easy to do in, in, in recruitment, but like, had any Will, had anyone before you kind of tried to do something similar with a different brand or a different a different live uh, product, so to speak? Are, are you kind of trailblazing in that regard? Um, I think that there's, there's a lot of different trailblazers who, you know, kind of cut their teeth in this kind of entertainment one advanced. Like, like I said, there's Bingo at the Standard in New York, which is kind of like, you know, doing not, not nothing very similar, but it was very much so like, it was like a brunch with Bingo added into it. And then you had thing like uh, thing, nothing called Rebel Bingo that was in London for for uh, about maybe like almost ten years ago, two thousand and I think two thousand and twelve kicked off. And then there was this bingo party in a hostel in, in Melbourne, two thousand and nine, um, which is well like twelve years ago now. So I mean, even if you just go to if you go to the regular bingo in National Stadium up there on South Circular Road, yeah. on um, you know on a Saturday night, you'll see like. You know, you know, mostly women. You know, maybe you know of mixed ages, getting absolutely lit while playing bingo. It's a great thing to drink at, um, and if you can put a theatrical show around that, you know, you're definitely onto a winner. And if you look at, I know I mentioned Secret Cinema earlier on. It's very much so. Like I hold that as the paradigm, the holy grail of, of an event where, you know, before the event, you know, you're getting an email. It gives you a full character profile, gives you your name, what your job's supposed to be. You know, you've got a whole character fulfilled. You've got a costume to wear. Uh, I remember doing the Casino Royale one um, just outside London. And they had a giant, massive, almost like the size of an airport hangar with different film sets inside. And you had to go in and try and find different agents and get information for them. And you didn't know who was a character who was planted and who was actually just a guest also in the role playing with yourself. And sometimes you're trying to get clues off someone and they're also playing the character so well, but you don't know if they're a guest because you're also playing a character. And you get completely lost in this whole world of being a secret agent and, you know, playing uh, playing poker at a, at a table with people who are, you know, clearly in costume. And, you know, you have to try and find the, the top poker table for the finale. And then there's like, you know, people falling down from the ceilings and, and from ropes and helicopter sound effects. And then everyone afterwards watches the actual movie and uh, and gets absolutely lit. And it's, it's, it's like this level of interactive entertainment where, for example, at Bingo Loco, we get people on stage doing dance-offs and lip-sync battles. We get the audience, you know, you know, up and dancing and interacting with each other in, in creative ways uh, and bring on kind of like, you know, audio visual um, kind of hacks where we bring Dustin out to do a piece or, from, or whatever it is. So we, it's it's just making sure that the audience is engrossed in the show rather than sitting back on a drink and just watching you and bopping along. So it's, um, we're definitely not like the leaders in interactive entertainment, but we've definitely carved out our own uh, our own niche, even within uh, a niche of what's what's become known, I guess, as social bingo, which would include things like, you know, drag bingo or titty bingo or chair or chicken shit bingo and all these kind of different bingo concepts around the world. Um, we've just kind of made a little corner for ourselves, put a flag up and called it Bingo Loco. 
Deadly. And when so this is all going. So this has only started a, a few years ago. What year would this kind of kick off? Well, um, the idea 2016. Okay. Um, and we started our first show in 2017. Okay. With a budget, I think of 300 euro to actually run <laughs> well, the event. How can you get to, to barely get a, enough cards and uh, and markers for that? Uh, we were pulling in favors <laughs> all over the place. We were, you know buying markers in the pound shop, mm-hmm. asking for people to like come down and just, you know, will you will you do us a favor and, and loan us some of some of this and some of that? And you know, we were like going to charity shops to try and buy prizes. I think with the first show we gave away a broken TV. I had in my apartment for about ten years. <laughs> a TV from the nineties. I think at one show we gave away a, a car clamp that we found on the way to the gig. And people went mental for it. Like a car clamp that had been cut off, a car that'd be parked illegally. So like we really just like it wasn't about the prizes. It wasn't about like high end production. It's about having a laugh and getting the audience on side, and it it worked. And will just to go back to the very start, like how does a an honors graduate from mechanical engineering end up uh, doing what you're doing now? I think. In school, I was told I was going to be good at engineering, and so I did. And they were right. I was good at it. I managed to, you know, study hard. Got got a first-class honours. It sits in my bedroom wall as a reminder of something that I did years ago. That's Never used by the it. Way. Never used it. No interest in engineering. Um, in college, I spent, I think I had 17% attendance. I spent most of my time running events and societies. Um you know, I ended up, you know, becoming the ENTS officer in DIT for two years, getting paid to organize parties. Absolute dream. And um, and then shortly afterwards, you know, getting approached by nightclubs to like, will you come in and run events for us? Will you do the marketing for us? Will you, you know, do you be interested in partying for doing a club night here and there? And I just kind of got dragged into the events industry. It was something I enjoyed doing. Um, I was always being a very social character. I've always been somebody who loves to like go out to meet, to network. And, you know, I think you know, nightlife and organizing nightlife offer that, you know, and even, you know, later on when I was, you know, going through a very much so a wellness approach, I was able to bring kind of event organization into that in terms of doing, you know, digital wellness retreats and doing morning yoga rays where you could go in and get a massage and, you know, dance to techno without alcohol or drugs before going to work and essentially raving your way into the day, um, you know, at six in the morning and then going into the office full of energy and everyone's like, what were you doing this morning? And they still covered the glitter. Yeah. So always like, you know, bringing, bringing what I love to do into somehow a way to make money. Um, and I guess there was, a, there was a while where I didn't make very much money at all, but I just, I just love doing it anyway. Um, and I guess that's the nature of an event. And the great thing about events is the revenue model is, you know, even if you don't have a huge amount of money, you're getting the money in advance. You know, it's almost like a Kickstarter campaign where everyone's buying into your event idea by buying tickets and then, you know, you execute the event for them and then you take the profits afterwards. So it's very much so a safe revenue model, um, which is why I guess there's so many, you know, student college promoters out there who are still in promotion today. Absolutely. That's what I was just going to say that because a lot of the people you talked to that were promoters uh, were ENTS officers in various uh, colleges and universities. Uh, and then they kind of continued yeah. that afterwards, you know. Um, yeah, and I would have known. I know you had Jamie White on here before as a guest, who yeah. is, um, you know, he's now kind of doing something similar as I'm doing. He's working remotely. He's sitting in Bali, yeah. you know, managing his own projects and everything else. And um, obviously, he was uh, very big in the promotions game, the student promotion game in Dublin for for many years, um, and built uh, like a student club night empire, so to speak. Um, and the same with uh, James Morrissey, who now I guess owns 
several bars in New York and he has a, a wine brand with um, with uh, Post Malone, you know, and he's, he's doing great things too. So there's been a lot of people in, in the Irish kind of club night scene who've gone on to do some very interesting things because it gives you that sense of excitement and entrepreneurial spirit and you get, you know, yeah, you get to, you get to go to step into the world of entrepreneurialism without having to go pitching for investment for the most part. And you get to have have fun along the way, which is always uh, which is always good. And what's that's a big part of it. So if you if you look at your Instagram, there there's, there's a lot of uh, travel in the meantime. Is that something that you were doing where you kind of like work, uh, do promotion and stuff like that, and then hit the road for long t- periods of time, or is it, have you been kind of going to these uh, places like uh, Iraq and North Korea, just kind of uh, here and there? What's the what's the kind of pattern there with the travel? Um. Well, I couldn't. Yeah, I think I've I, I've travelled a little bit less in in recent years because I've had to spend more time in Ireland. You know, actually building Bingo Loco as it grew, but I've still been very fortunate enough. You know, each year to spend maybe like you know maybe two months um, or three months outside of the of the country and building like travel into a way of you know my lifestyle. And I initially went travelling to I guess explore the world. I had a deep desire to travel and to kind of like you know, drop everything and, and, and go and lay myself to grieve. Um, my mother passing, you know, many, many years ago, but now I'd gotten so busy just like trying to figure out what I was doing with my life and always trying to find a million projects and being like always on my gadgets, organizing events, super distracted, super hectic. Um, and so in 2000 and in 2016, I basically left and, and traveled the world for the guts of 14 months. Um, roaming everywhere, figuring out what I wanted in life and, you know, letting go of loss. Um, you know, I ended up like, you know, leaving the love of my life at the time to try and go and do this and figure it out. Something I really needed to do. And, you know, I was just fascinated by the people that I met everywhere and found myself very quickly traveling in a way that others didn't. Um, so instead of going to from hostel to hostel, from pub crawl to pub crawl, I found myself, you know, um, staying in the homes of, anti-Taliban vigilante fighters of Pakistan or living in monasteries in China learning Kung Fu from Shaolin masters and, you know, you know, couch surfing in opium dens in Iran and all these kind of mad things. And I'd be going to Iraq and, you know, sitting in the front line fight against ISIS with a lot of Peshmerga army, so, you know, um, soldiers and stuff like that, wearing military fatigues and holding a machine gun and all these other things. And it's just, it's just kind of, it, it just, I just got so interested in, in, you know, what life is like in places that people don't go to have fear that's been created by other people, maybe a meet or whatever it is. And when actuality and going to these places, meeting people who are kind, who are hospitable, um, where the culture was rich and realizing, okay, well, maybe not everywhere is dangerous. Where else can I go and find out the truth about what people are like and not just, you know, take a, take an opinion of a place based on, you know, a news report or something bad that happened in that place, maybe five, 10 years ago. Um, and you know, I've fallen in love with a lot of these places. I'm now organizing expeditions in Pakistan for, I think the last almost four years, four or five years, bringing groups of influencers, content creators, and just, you know, adventurous souls, you know, up the mountains in Pakistan and, you know, roaming near the border of, of Afghanistan in this place called Gilbaltistan, where we go trekking and camping at the base camps, the world's tallest mountains and meeting Ruby dealers and, you know, and um, trying some of the local moonshine, you know, and just, yeah, just kind of allow people to see what what travel can actually be like. 
yeah. you know, when you're not going to the full moon party in Thailand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting. Where, where do we start yeah, with all that? There's a, cause I, it's a interesting point as well about the media and how they make you feel about countries or people that come in countries. And I remember when I was uh, going traveling as well, our first stop was uh, South America. We're going to go there for a few months. Um, and I remember getting on the plane and being really worried flying to Rio, thinking that this is going to be, you know, super dangerous, super, you know, uh, scary, all that type of stuff. But then uh, I bet we met some of the, I mean, the nicest people in the world uh, that when we were there. Um, did, didn't feel unsafe at all, all that type of stuff. So it's uh, really interesting. I'm interested to, uh, that, that Pakistan made such an impact on you because I've never, I, I know a couple of uh, people in work that are from Pakistan, uh, but I've never heard of any kind of Westerners really going there. Um, you know, is it, are, are you uh, on your own there quite a lot when you're, uh, as a traveler or is there kind of a, a subgroup there if you go there you'll you'll find people that are like-minded type of thing um it's definitely not the kind of place where like you'll you land in go to a hostel and meet a lot of other backpackers it's the kind of place where you know you land in maybe you go on to couch surfing or a facebook group and you find a local um who you'll meet and you'll make friends with them and hang out with them and they'll show you where to go and You'll 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 always be well taken care of. They'll introduce you to their friends. They'll take two days off work to bring you into their home and to feed you and to show you around and um like they'll steal your heart. Like initially you're you're so taken aback it almost you think they're trying to scam you. You go into a shop and they're like, you know, giving you here have a coke, have a Mars bar, have some crisps, have some cigarettes, and you're like, I don't want these things. They're like no, it's a gift. Honestly, you're welcome to our country. You'll go into a restaurant and you're trying to pay and they won't let you pay. Amazing. And you're like, oh, are they be, are they being genuine? You know, and you're and you're like you're like trying to like sneak money into their pockets. See, they're like, no, no, you know, please, you know. And afterwards, like, you know, take my number if you need anything while you're here. You can give me a call, and we'll make sure that you're you're well taken care of. And if you want a place to stay, you'll always have a, a place in our home. And you, like you're 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 seriously taken aback. So the first time I went there, I was I'd finished doing like a like a ten day isolation meditation retreat in Burma, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. And I'd shared a room with this Finnish guy who had hitchhiked from Helsinki uh, to Islamabad years before. Really, really inspiring guy. Now one of my best friends. And he basically convinced me to go to Pakistan. But at the time, like, it was very much so still in the media as a place where there was a lot of suicide bombings, a lot of, you know, Taliban um, kind of growth and stuff like that, um, which is now completely gone. And, you know, I think Pakistan's probably the only country that's truly won the war on terrorism domestically for the most part. Um, but yeah, like I, I basically put up on Facebook a post. I said, anyone that can get me like a, a business visa into Pakistan, because at the time you had to basically fly home and get a, a tourist visa in your in your in your home consulate. And I I knew a woman who linked me in with the Chamber of Commerce there, and they said, oh, we we'll have a speaker series at the moment. We see that you're a public speaker and you're giving talks. You've got a you've got a, a TEDx talk in this thing. Would you be interested in joining our speaker series? We need you to speak for an hour. And I said, yeah. And can you give me business visas for two friends as well? And so me and my two friends, we boarded a flight. Luckily, they, they, they let us on the flight in Bangkok. There was initially a lot of hesitation because they, they never seen any, any you know, white people getting on this, these, these flights to, uh, to Pakistan. And we arrived and we, were, we tried the best in a, to dress up in our business attire, a wrinkled shirt at the bottom of a backpack. We put on jeans thinking this was formal. And we landed in and they... Uh, there was a guy waiting there. There was an immigration officer, you know, military uniform waiting there. 
And he said, uh, is your good name, is your good name William? I said, it is. And he brought me into this back office and he gave his tea and he gave his biscuits. This is the immigration officer, the head of immigration, who was just so delighted to see, you know, foreign tourists coming in uh, or even business guests. And, you know, you know, stamped visas in our passports and walked us through immigration, walked us through baggage, walked us through the whole airport outside and, and handed us to the guy who was collecting us. And, you know, from that moment onwards, we were never left alone. In fact, we had to convince people to leave us. So we wanted to hitchhike and people were like, no, 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 we'll bring you, we'll buy you a ticket. And they're like, no, we want to hitchhike. It's great for me, people. It's a European thing. And people couldn't get their head around us hitchhiking in Pakistan, holding our, our thumb out with a sign saying Islamabad. And, you know, like people coming up and saying, oh, no, here's a here's money if you need money for a bus yeah. ticket. Or, you know, I'll, I'll call my uncle now to get a taxi for you. Uh, just just honestly just trying to help, thinking we were stuck. But really all we wanted to do was just a hitchhike on one of these colourful trucks that have loads of jingly bells hanging off and we wanted to do as an experience. But we got to like, you know, we got invited to see, you know, where all of the, the shoes for Dunn stores are made in a factory. We got invited to see a farm where all the milk for Nestle was produced for Pakistan. And we got constantly got to meet interesting people again and again and again. And I just became obsessed with the place. And I remember sitting there before leaving, almost like in tears, leaving this place where I'd made such amazing friends so quickly and promising them all that I will be back and I'll bring more people back and I'll tell everyone how amazing this is. And over the course of the last four or five years, you know, I'm not an advocate of a lot of the stuff that goes on in Pakistan. Look, it's by no means a perfect country, but more so that like the people are beautiful and I've been bringing people back and I've been sitting on TV uh, in Pakistan on talk shows, you know, because they're like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, I'm just want to, I want to show the world that you're not, you're not a dangerous nation, you know, um, that people should come here and that it's a great place to travel. It's hard to travel. It's a difficult place. It's a logistical nightmare to get around. And it's a lot they need to work on. But if you don't mind a life a bit rough around the edges, you know, and you don't mind things being perfect, and someone else having no Wi-Fi and sharing with a bucket of cold water and, you know, waiting sometimes ages for your food or maybe a landslide taking a road away and waiting for 100 guys to build it back with shovels, then it's the perfect place to go on an adventure. And, um, yeah, I think this year, you know, I might have up to four expeditions, um, you know, going to Pakistan of you know, large travel influencers who are super curious to go, but want to go with people who know the lay of the land. Yeah. Um, I also get a lot of females who want to go on these expeditions because they feel they feel much safer uh, going to a country that I guess would have um, a very male orientated society in terms of the family structure and how it's orientated and stuff like that. So they would have their concerns about it, even though there's lots of solo female backpackers who, who explore Pakistan with no issues whatsoever, meet only kindness, I guess. They, they, they feel safer, more confident going when they're with a group, you know. And, uh, and people have seen me going for years now and they trust that they're going to have a very interesting experience when they do go. Class. And the you mentioned that you're in Iraq as well. These are all kind of places that are, are not really on the, uh, on the, the backpacking trail, like you said. Uh, what, what drew you to Iraq? Was that just because it was the, the most... Uh, uh, kind of out there place you could think of you wanted to see it, what the people were like there was it recommended by somebody how did that come about we'd been hitchhiking around me and my friend Craig uh, with uh, a Kurdish girl called Sharman who was very much so uh, an Iranian who you know lived the opposite of the way Iranian women were expected to live she refused to wear the hijab had her, her hair dyed blue uh, lived a very progressive life and um, really kind of like taught me a lot about you know, Kurdish people, the plight of the Kurds, the history of the Kurds and what they've gone through. Um, and through 
through this, we went to the Kurdish region of, of Iran. And there, you know, we were blown away by how, how wonderful they were and how nice they were and how, how rich the culture was and how they've maintained it, even though they've been split amongst four different countries. And we'd learned that as an Irish passport holder, you can get 30 days visa-free on arrival at the border of, the, of Kurdistan, Iraq, which is the, Nordish, the, North, the northern uh, territory. And actually, if you look online, you'll see a lot of people have started going there, like some of the biggest bloggers in the world now, like uh, Drew Binsky and the Yes Project and stuff like that, have finally now started going to the to north of Iraq and, it, and realizing that it is safe. This is obviously, you know, Mosul is now back in Kurdish Gardari, back in control, and ISIS are mostly stamped out there, so people feel safer going there. But at the time, there was an assault, um, and Mosul was under under siege, um, and there was, you know, there was a lot of different fronts um, happening across um, Kurdistan, Iraq, and in the Arabic region of it. Um, but we were curious to, to, to kind of check out what was going on. Uh, we knew that we'd be met by kindness. If the Kurds this side of the border were nice, they would be nice to the other side, and, and we were completely correct. And over the course of, you know, two weeks, we just got wrapped up and embroiled in story of the people we were going to refugee camps raising money back home and going to the bazaars and buying little hats and socks and gloves and boots to help the kids in these refugee camps so that they wouldn't have you know blistered feet from the cold and in the in the kurdish winter which is pretty bitter and um and being invited to places that yeah definitely you know as as backpackers you will be seen to be very irresponsible maybe to go to these places but we were with you know, the general of the Peshmerga army is the most successful fighting force against ISIS. Um, and, you know, there was no way that this this man who we'd made good friends with and these fixes we good friends with, these, you know, these lieutenants that, you know, we'd spent a lot of time with and been very well briefed with, were going to bring us to any place where we were going to be at danger. Okay. They knew we weren't journalists, you know, um, although certain people definitely thought we were. And we just, yeah, we just, we just embraced it for what it was to, as an opportunity to learn. At the time, we'd been kind of doing a lot of investigative travel blogging and kind of recording a lot of all the things we were seeing across the Middle East um, on, on our blog. We weren't doing it to try and make our blog famous or whatever it was. It was more so to record our own thoughts and to maybe like share it with people who might find it interesting. And um, and after this experience where we'd we'd spent a day with uh, uh, with a lot of soldiers, you know, at a defensive perimeter, and I won't go too much details of what happened there, but we, I'd kind of documented the experience of getting there and, and, and what that was like and the kindness of the people. And the story just blew up and went absolutely mad. And all of a sudden we wake up one day and I'm on the front page of an Irish newspaper saying, you know, Irish terror tourist and, you know, uh, Irish backpackers wake up drunk after a night out drinking whiskey, fighting ISIS and all sorts of mad warped versions of the story emerging on things like Lad Bible and, and all these kind of tabloids and whatever it is. And you bomb Margera and Akon and, other celebrities in the US sharing all across their social media. And we're getting calls from production houses in the US who want to option the life rights of this, this, you know, war dog style story and, and turn it into a screenplay and all sorts of mad stuff. And, and we're sitting there, you know, walking around bazaars trying to buy socks for kids. And we're like, what's going on? Um, but we were able to use this kind of this, this viral media attention and say, Hey, you're using, you're referencing our blog and using my photos and information. Can you at least put this fundraiser link in so we can make more money and do whatever you want? We didn't really care at the time. But then it started, I started, we start, I started getting emails anyway from like a lot of the big corporate clients that I had done, uh, that I was doing a lot of corporate speaking gigs for going, oh, due to the, the nature of the attention around your profile at the moment, we're going to postpone this, this the speaking engagement until maybe another time in the near future, whatever it is. And, you know, after traveling for, you know, 14 or 16 months and returning back to Ireland, 
the only thing going through my head then was like, you know, will I ever get a job again? If someone Googles my name, all they'll see is me in military fatigues all over the, you know, all over the front page of these newspapers. But I mean, deep down, I knew I was never really going to be working for anyone again. Anyway, I was always kind of leading towards entrepreneurship and I'd been self-employed at that stage for about two years anyway. So I embraced it. And, um, you know, I, from going forward then, you know, anytime I've traveled, I've always gone to, you know, the places of, of human interest where I wanted to like find out what was actually happening. I'm like going to the Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh and going to, to North Korea to find out what it's actually like, even though you get a very kind of facaded version of it, trying to poke holes and peek behind that, you know, carefully when you're there. Um, just to find out what's actually going on in the world rather than just read the papers and taking it at face value, you know. And the, the North Korea uh, trip, uh, without going into too much details, because I know that we've, uh, we're pushing time already here. Um, but was that what you expected? Were, were, was that, again, uh, kind of overblown by the media about the, how it was? Or did, are the media kind of nailing that one uh, uh, in North Korea? Media aren't far off the mark. Really? Um, like, there was one day we went to a, a kind of a, a model farm where basically it's just, a, it's just a machine for making food for the general populace. And um, I think maybe I was asking too many questions, but I was asking like, Things like, so, you know, what happens if you run out of fertilizer or if your tools break, you know, who buys them, seeing as you only get to keep a portion of the food you produce. And they're like, oh, we make our own fertilizer, you know, from our own waste and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, the more questions I asked, the darker it got, um, you know, and I got in a lot of trouble for slipping a lot of money in, in, a, in a pot in some woman's house. Um, she probably shouldn't have done, to be honest with you, but like looking at where she was living and the kind of lifestyle she led, I thought like slipping 20 euro into a pot would have been like, you know, uh, a nice thing to do, but, you know, might have even caused, you know, a lot of trouble between her and neighbours because people are always ratting on each other if someone gets, you know, a bit more, everyone's, you know, it's like crabs in a bucket, they pull each other down, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, it was pretty grim. See, like we went to one hotel and as soon as we walked in, you know, it was like robots powering on. They turned on the lights, you know, the receptionist woke up from behind the thing, a girl started singing karaoke at the reception. <laughs> And it was very much so you, you experience a lot of staged, a lot of staged things. But also you get to go to a lot of places where it's not staged. I got to go on, you know, the metro through Pyongyang where, you know, thousands and thousands of people are whirring around you and like coming up to you being like, welcome to North Korea, you know, yeah. welcome to the DPRK, you know, whispering in your ear and then legging it off again. Like, What's going on? You know, <laughs> so it's, uh, it is, a, you, you can, you can feel that there's, there's a lot of fear, but you also get a sense of like, they do love the leadership. Like, because all they see every day is the leaders smiling and pointing at things and how, you know, um, but they hate the regime. But there's like an idolism almost of the leaders that, like, you, you know, you spend your whole life seeing these smiling leaders and, and hearing it and reading it constantly. And a lot of them actually do adore the leaders. It's kind of a weird, weird thing, you know. Stockholm syndrome, probably. Yeah, do you know what? Maybe, maybe that's what it is, you know. Um, but you see, you'll see like seven people sitting around, you know, breaking ice up on the path because like they have to, they all have a job. There's no unemployment, you know, it's, That's, although yeah. they might all be miserable and getting paid nothing. But it's, yeah, it's a really bizarre place. There's something to and, do. You know, there was a small, small part of guilt, you know, after seeing that, realizing that I'd, you know, I'd, I'd paid a pretty reasonable amount of money to try and, and get this inside. I wanted to go for, to North Korea for pretty much most of my life because I just found it so bizarre and absurd. Um, knowing that a large portion of that probably goes to the North Korean government who were treating these people like shit. And yeah, I had to kind of deal with that. I, was, I didn't feel too comfortable with it, but I definitely got a lot of learnings from it. And if I can, you know, pass those learnings on to the world, 
maybe there's something in that. I don't know. Maybe it was maybe it was slightly selfish too. I have to go see these things though for yourself though. Like you said, it, you, you could have learned uh, like you uh, learned in the Pakistan uh, example. Do you know what I mean? So it was worth uh, having a look for sure. Um, what would be so we're gonna finish off now and let you get back to your palm trees and your uh and your co-working <laughs> space out there in mexico um, but we like to kind of finish off the podcast with some rapid fire questions and then we, we like to contrast and compare the the answers of uh, the guests here uh, it's kind of mark's party piece here um they don't have to be rapid a uh, rapid uh, uh answers but uh mark's gonna bang them out what do you think mark okay um will what apps do you use the most on your phone um, I use My Wall Street a lot, which is uh, it's an Irish-owned company that allows you to get insight to how the stock market's moving and and teach you how to invest in the stock market and you know and you can also you can buy stocks from in there. Um, you know, there's lots of kind of trading apps and stuff out there, but I use that one because I guess it's Irish-owned. I support Irish businesses, um, but also I find it extremely useful. They've got a great podcast. They've got great spin-off products for long-term investment planning and stuff like that. Um, another one I use a lot is what we're using right now, which is Zoom, I guess, because I'm working remotely and everything I do every day is, is done through Zoom. Uh, I'm using Slack a lot. I use Instagram when I'm traveling to kind of, you know, when I'm networking and meeting people. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I use Skyscanner a huge amount when I'm, you know, traveling normally at the moment. Obviously, I'm traveling very slow because, you know, I'm staying in more or less the same place in, in Mexico for a month at a time, you know, getting a private room, finding a co-working space and, um, and, you know, spending a lot of my time at the beach, maybe learning Spanish or, or exercising, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I use cool. TransferWise because I do a lot of international business. TransferWise is pretty, pretty handy. Um, is that another Irish TransferWise one? is great Irish? for... Maybe not, I don't know. Is I a TransferWise Irish company? I think so. I didn't know that. That's I think they cool. are. Or at least um, they were started by Irish people. They might have been bought by now, but I think they did. Yeah, because you can you can start, you can create a, a bank account in almost any country within two minutes. So, oh. you know, if you wanted a UK bank account, you go on there, create one, and within two minutes or two seconds, you've got like a, a UK BIC and you've got a UK IBAN that you can receive pounds with. So, it's, yeah, it's great for when you're traveling. I can, you know, do business in Pakistan or whatever it is. Yeah, it's great up. Class. Um, okay, what's what's the best business idea you've never acted upon? This is a funny one. So I had I had an idea for a nudist dining experience uh, where it would be like a spa-like experience where you'd arrive in and you'd go to a cloakroom and you'd, you'd take off your clothes, put them in a locker and you'd put on a bathrobe and slippers and you'd have, you know, clothing optional uh, seating and you'd have uh, you'd have nudist seating and it would be about kind of entering into a primal uh, world of, you know, a time before technology. So you'd leave all your gadgets at the door um, all the food would be raw. It would be eaten off clay plates. It would be eaten either with your hands or with wooden cutlery. And it was about kind of like the primal nature of eating, uh, but like with very, very tasteful vegan menus, seven courses, you, you know, you'd land in, maybe have a nice uh, avocado uh, cocktail or whatever it is, alcohol-free, and uh, and feeling what it would what it'd be like to like you know a time of dining before dawn. You know, wow. And uh, maybe maybe the the best thought out uh, business idea that haven't been acted on uh, that we've had so far. Uh, so <laughs> a nudist primal dining uh, experience. I think 
Yeah, I think that I, I tried. I tried. I tried. I tried a nudist. Uh, a nudist hostel for the first time this weekend. Just gone. Um, then it's a pretty interesting experience. Um, so is clothing optional in the hostel? People just walking around. No, nope. nudism is obligatory. Okay. okay, it's obligatory. Okay, I actually, yeah. I'd prefer obligatory to be honest. Uh, I've been on a couple of these clothing optional beaches, and there's some people there. You know, if you're in or you're not. Do you know what I mean? We're all in this together. Yeah, I, I, w- I wouldn't call myself a nudist, and I, I think I've only tried it once or twice. And I think it's just like nice to sometimes step outside of your comfort zone and, and try new things. And for me this year, it, it's about, I think, pushing myself as far as possible outside of my comfort zone. Um, about, about maybe about two weeks ago, um, I tried a thing called Bufo, which is the, I think, the world's strongest psychedelic uh, with a shaman uh, in a mountain here in Mexico where, where you know, last about five minutes and you see your whole life flash in front of your eyes and you feel like you understand what it's like to die and be grateful for being alive wow. the most insane thing so yeah i think trying you know things like that and definitely that this this experience last weekend of you know stepping outside of my comfort zone to be naked around other people for two days straight definitely was it was weird at the start and after a while it was weird putting clothes on yeah. <laughs> i was like why do i have to wear these things you know yeah, <laughs> I can only see that you're wearing a, a long sleeve T-shirt. Well, I'll, I'll have to take your word for it that you have pants on. <laughs> you're going to have, have it. It's but, actually an, an Irish band as well that sent me this T-shirt. Wild Tibetan monks. They're great. You should listen to them. They're, they're pretty cool. <laughs> Good shout out. Well, okay, it, if you could do business anywhere in the world, where would it be? Honestly, Ireland. It's great. Low corporation tax. Um, doing business with Irish people is great. You have a half an hour of talking absolute shite before you actually do business, which I love. Um, <laughs> British people don't like that that so much, you know. After five minutes, they're like, "Let's get into business." I'm like, "Ah, no, let's talk more." So I, I like, I like the, I like like building relationships with with Irish people and doing business. That was a lot of fun. You can build trust that way, um, and also like because I guess you know doing business in Ireland. I guess you know I've got a corporate events company as well called Event Labs, and that we do events for you know all of the big companies in the world because they're all based in Ireland. So it's a great place to do business there and to network in that way, and I mean. Love him or hate him, Ryanair. It's just a great airline for getting around Europe pretty easy at all. All Ryanair flights return to Dublin. So, you know, you've got you've got an easy way to access the rest of the world from Ireland, even though we're a small, isolated little island, you know. Um, and it's home. It's home. And I think if you're going to do business, you need to be also spend time around people you love. And as much as I like to work remotely, I think working in Ireland long term is probably what's what's going to be my thing, you know. Okay. Um how much money is enough money? Um, 70,000 euros a year. I like it. Nice round I think number. that's enough. That's enough in Dublin to, that's what you need in Dublin if you want to like basically not have to, you know, think too much about money. And that's, that's scary that Dublin has become so expensive that, you know, the, the minimum amount you need to survive in Dublin is probably around 27 to 30,000 euros. And that's not even minimum wage. Um, to live comfortably in Dublin to like, do all the fancy stuff of going out to brunches and going on holidays and live the lifestyle that people, you know, people actually want to live. I think that's like, that was a number that was, that was said to me. It was 70,000, which is kind of scary, but realistically, you know, as long as you have people that love you and as long as you have a roof over your head and you take care of yourself and eat properly, you know, money isn't really, it's not really, it's not really the motivation that you should be but having for, for living a good life. Out of interest, Will, like where you are now, it looks like you're kind of doing the, the, four-hour work week or Tim Paris life or arbitrage thing. Like how much is enough money where you are right now in Mexico? 
the average kind of co-working kind of uh, digital nomad resident here probably can live off maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say maybe about a thousand five hundred euros and that would that would cover their accommodation somewhere their gym membership you know maybe their few drinks and food in the evening um, their their co-working use a few coffees and, and maybe like you know enough to get them around if they need to kind of go and check out a few experiences in the area um, so I think like you could live very comfortably in somewhere like you know Mexico or Thailand or you know, these are the kind of digital nomad hubs um, of Bali, whatever it is, for about a thousand five hundred a month. Okay, very good. Um, okay, is it is it who you know or what you know? Wow, <laughs> that's a that's a loaded question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, look, you can low know you can low know loads of stuff. But like you need a team to implement some things. And I think I think we've found success within our organization because we all have a unique set of skills that complement each other that we don't have a full set ourselves. Mm. Um, and I have I have great respect for a lot of these companies that have visionary CEOs. But when you really dig into it, there's a team of people around them that complement their vision. Um, so oftentimes it's who you know um, will, will help you because you can't know everything. But you can know people who know more than you do. Very good. I like that. Okay. Last one, Mark. What's what's the burning question before we let uh let our, our guests hit the hit the the waves here? Okay. If you could advise somebody to learn one skill or even have one experience, what would it be? Um, learn to public speak. Because if you can learn to public speak, you can learn to convey your points. If you can convey your points, you can do sales. If you can, if you can sell. You can pitch. If you can pitch, you can make a business. So learning to public speak, deliver your message clearly, use, you know, various techniques, such as pause, presentation, pronunciation, you know, how to deliver, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. You know, if you can do that when you're talking and presenting, I think it's the most valuable skill that you can have. And is there a, a book or a course or anything that you did or you, that you'd recommend? Mm, no school of hard knocks just you got to get up and start doing it and work hard at it i think i did a talk once when i was in the students union in in dit once where they brought in like you know we we're going to be talking in a lot of classrooms and lecture halls around five different campuses that had twenty two thousand students and so they you know they, they kind of teach you the basics of it but really it's just you can't you can't beat standing on a stage and just talking to people maybe go do a speech and drama class to give yourself some confidence um, give you creativity and presenting an idea in your head but I think yeah you just got to keep doing it get going okay uh, Will thank you very much for uh, for joining us on the Shark Pod tonight um, usually uh, we send a, uh, a Shark Pod t-shirt or a mug uh, we don't even know where to send it though uh, by the time you, <laughs> by the time you get there so <laughs> which one would you prefer uh, would it be a shirt or a mug I think I think a mug would be nice you know because I think a podcast is about talking and you usually fill a mug with things that you talk over, like a cup of tea or a coffee. So okay. I'll get a mug off you when I get back to Ireland. I might be back, I might be back in a month or so for a okay. few new projects. Perfect. Well, wish you all the best of luck with everything. And thanks very much for joining us on the Shackpot. Thanks for a pleasure. Best of luck. Best of luck at the podcast and keep getting great guests. It's great to listen to. All right. Thanks, Cheers. Will. Talk soon. Bye. Best of luck. Bye. Bye. Bye.